This is episode 68 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 68 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the center. In this episode, we chat with Dr. John T. Bruchalski, an obstetrician gynecologist and the founder of Tepeyac OBGYN, one of the largest pro life clinics in the United States. He and his family joined us on campus as we presented him with the 11th annual Notre Dame Evangelium Vitae Medal at a mass and dinner in his honor. Let's sit down together for a marvelous chat about his journey of conversion and his mission to share the mercy of God through his practice of medicine. Well, John, thank you so much for coming to be on the podcast. Ken, it's wonderful to be here. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where did you do your studies? Kind of those sorts of things. Yeah, sure. I'm 61 years of age. I've been married for 31 years to my wife, Carolyn. Uh, I grew up in northern New Jersey, Mawa, Bergen County. Went to a wonderful Salesian High School, a Jesuit college in Mobile, Alabama, Spring Hill College. I went to medical school at the uh, University of South Alabama in Mobile. And so I was there for about nine years total in the South as a New Jerseyan. And then uh, moved, uh, got my residency in Norfolk, Virginia at the Eastern Virginia School of Medicine. Uh, That's where I met Carolyn in the operating room. And uh, she's been a part of my life, uh, a very important part of my life since then. And so we have two boys now, uh, JP and Joseph, uh, both 28 and uh, 25, respectively, and a wonderful granddaughter of Virginia, who's two and a half and full of it. So uh, I've been blessed. I have really been blessed. What drew you to medicine? What uh, and and yeah, and, yeah. And to OBGYN work? Kind yeah, of sure, specific. sure. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, I'm the oldest of three in a Polish family. Mm-hmm. We were very close family, you know, and, but it's an extended family. Um, I had brothers who were cousins, basically, not biologically, but as a clan, as a kin. Yeah. The kinship. And uh, I had a cousin who lived in northern Virginia uh, when I was in New Jersey by the name of Rob Roy Mackinac. And uh, he wanted to be a doctor. So I think psychologically, I wanted to become a doctor. I really fell in love with medicine. I was fascinated by the models of the human person, including the female model that had a baby in a tummy. You could replace the intestines and show how the uterus grew. And I was always fascinated by that. Uh, I always was fascinated in biology. I got smacked on the hand by Felician nuns when I brought embryology to a third grade classroom. It was considered verboten. So I got my hand slapped and whatever. And so uh, it was him. So that was the, that was like the psychological reason. My dad was, my mom, dad, they were happy with whatever I did as long as I remained faithful. Mm-hmm. And um, because I had many female friends, I just liked listening to stories. 
And many of the stories were stories, stories about cycles and headaches and weight gain and bloatedness and hair loss. And so uh, what they tell me is that when I got to my clerkship, academically, I'm middle of the road. But seeing patients, I did okay because I think I listened with kindness and with thoroughness. And so I became the PMS expert at the college. I was a dorm direct, you know, I was a RA. You'd walk around and you'd, I would read and look and I was fascinated by it. And so I think it was those two things that got me into OBGYN. That's really where it happened. But it wasn't until, so I, growing up in a small New Jersey town, I had a family practitioner who was my, you know, was our doctor, mm -hmm. good guy, but he was a single man practice. He didn't have a nurse. He listened to you for a second, did something to you for a second, and you were fixed. But he was always there for us, for my mother's asthma, for my father's hernias. So um, I go to medical school. I have no idea what I want to be because there's nobody. You know, I have 60 first cousins, but just, a, you know, a, maybe two handfuls went to college. Uh, old Polish family, you go work. You, you know, you participate in life. You, you know, you work. So... I'm at medical school, and uh, I get to the rotation of my OBGYN clerkship, and I was fascinated because I started listening to patients suffering from um, broken relationships, unwanted pregnancies, infertility, and I, I was a really good resident, worked hard, listened. A doctor there who's a dear friend who's now passed away, Dr. Kate. He said, Johnny, you could really be a great gynecologist. You have an interest in surgery and in hormones and in alternatives. And you're open to your, you used to be Catholic. And if you're open to abortion, you can make a lot of money and you're really doing women a service. And as I began to listen to women, I heard about the tragedies of their menstrual life. <laughs> all in the negative. And the way in OBGYN we were taught to fix that was put them on hormones from 12 to 50, put them on more hormones from 50 to 80, and then kiss them goodbye. And so that was it. And so uh, he convinced me. So, uh, you know, being kind of in the past Catholic, I looked at Georgetown and I looked at Eastern Virginia and I looked at Harvard Tufts in Boston uh, Emory. And I ended up at Eastern Virginia because they had a, the uh, Jones Institute for Reproductive Medicine. And that's where they were, the, they were the home of the first test tube child, the IVF child in this country. They were kicked out of Hopkins because of their age, age discrimination. And at 65, they came to us and they built an empire there, the, you know, a very well-respected, world-respected, world-class OBGYN practice but also, especially in infertility, we made embryos back in the, I was there from 87 to 91. So yeah, really well-trained people from all over the world. You know, the best uh, male infertility doctor from Argentina, the best embryologist from Yale, you know, just one thing after another. So that's what attracted me. Yeah. Wow. Well, now, as a young doctor in the field, you practice the standard of care prescribing contraceptives and performing abortions when when uh, called for. 
I say when, when called for. I'm going to restart that question because that's not what I wanted to say. Well, you may restart that question, but you are not, not wrong in the sense that for the culture, not, you know, for ethics and culture, culture, yeah. but for the pervasive culture that we live in today in medicine, OBGYN, most practices are about stamping out fertility, stamping out children. Children are seen as sexually transmitted diseases. They're accidents. They're, they cause suffering. They, they derail you. So abortion is called for more and more and more and more and more by most OBGYNs. Now, most OBGYNs don't do abortions because like I did for two years and then I stopped – it's a brutal, bloody, traumatic experience, and then it gets easier and easier and easier. The more you do it, easier because it just—it's a slippery slope. So, for instance, Down syndrome—the governmental handout on it—abortion's an option. Abortion's always an option. Contraception is always an option. IVF used to be only for forty-year-old women who delayed their fertility so long and had diseased tubes through sexually transmitted diseases, that was back when we were doing it. Now, 22-year-olds, 25-year-olds, freeze your eggs, manipulate the whole process. Yes, sir. Um, you didn't misspeak, even though for, for where we are now, it's not only a, an atrocity and the brutality of abortion, it's the way it's foisted on women for, and then the post-trauma that happens after. What did they talk me into? Also in IVF, the frozen embryos. Children, property, loved, used, wanted, welcomed. That's human. That's when your department here talks about what does it mean to be human? When it talks about what it means to be a woman, a mother, those things are real. I don't care what your ideology is. For the abortionist, it's real. I don't care what your ideology is. It's experiential, as John Paul II talked about. It's experiential. But when you combine it with the truth, like some phenomenologists are trying to do, and doctors like myself are trying to do, that's the way you get at people, is start with the experience, and then, because that's, what, that's, that's how it happened to me. Well, you ended up getting where I was going with the question was, what led you, as one who was acting in accord with the standard of care to question that prevailing standard, that prevailing mindset. So I am sitting here in the DiNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. And on the wall, you have the principles of what this place stands for. And it's exactly, it has its finger on the pulse of my change of heart. On one side, we have uh, Dr. McIntyre, the academic. Well, I began to read academic OBGYN articles about how abortion was not as good as we thought. Breast cancer, increasing. Preterm birth, increasing. Substance abuse and suicide, increasing. That's kind of data-driven. So the academic journals we began to read were beginning to show uh, it's not as great as you think. Then in front of me, we have your Soren fellows. We have young people. Well, when I 
came after my conversion. It was a young Church of Latter-day Saint young man said, we always knew you'd come around. You had the gift of kindness. Will you want to go and get a beer? Yeah. I just finished talking to the famous uh, Dr. Georgiana Jones, telling her that I found Jesus and Mary, and I can't do this anymore. It's really not good for people. Like, my eyes were, the, the scales came off. But it was a Soren fellow-like. It was a person who had the guts and the courage and the fun, who played hard, worked hard, and prayed hard, as your fellows do here, somebody who cared about me. And then I see the Vita fellows or alumni. Vita Institute, yeah. The Institute. And it's all these doctors in the community who then started popping up and going, oh, it's really nice to see you. Do you want to speak at William & Mary? Oh, great. Do you want to debate somebody? Sure, that's great. But they were professionals and they were real people. And so I'm sitting here and this center is exactly the reason why I changed. It was a convergence of humanity, academics, because, you know, tomorrow, believe it or not, is Divine Mercy Sunday for us Catholics. And I know the mercy of God because my heart was getting hardened. And when people say, oh, we need nurses to do abortions, we, knew, we need PAs to do abortions, we need non, non-medical people to do abortions, we, need, we don't even need doctors, we can just send it to you over the phone, the mail, telehealth abortions where you're left to blow out bloodily and painfully your child, your fetus, either in your bed or in the path between your bed and the bathroom or in the bathroom. That's going to come back to haunt us because that's the new wave of where abortion's going. But to tell you myself, I was getting hardened, hardened heart. And it was a wonderful NICU doctor, Dr. Debbie Plum. John, stop giving me tumors. Next day, she had a cup of coffee with me. And she said, dude, you can't do this. It's destructive, both for the child that you're trying to give to me because it was too, you didn't do a good history. You were a poor, do- come on, man, you're a better doctor than this. There's two patients there. Two patients, two, the intertwining of mother and child in the womb, in the uterus. So she then referred me uh, on a trip that I took with my mother, and I changed my heart. It just happened to me this way. But I look back, and it was all of what you do here. So I am grateful, Ken. Man, it's wonderful. (laughs) Well, what were those early days like when you— after you realized that you had to do something different and uh, you and your wife, Carolyn started your own clinic in your basement. So um, I, I joined a a wonderful, uh, believe it or not, Paul McCauley, who's a a graduate. He's a domer uh, at a wonderful pro-life practice just North of Washington, DC in Silver Spring. They had a long history of great doc pro-life doctors in that practice. But when I came off the hill, I kind of heard both and. You must be excellent, meaning you must be board certified and you better know the data better than they know the data. So I was at a contraceptive research and development center. I know the data. Uh, I was doing abortions. I knew that data. But now the whole world of life-affirming medicine opened up. But there weren't many docs practicing on the ground. But for me, it was excellence, but I had to see the underserved alongside the served. I wanted the stripper next to the senator. (laughs) I wanted that dynamic because what we're doing is good for the practitioner, 
the patient, the parishioners, the pastors, and the payers. If you want to renew the face of medicine, excellence, make sure you see the underserved. I didn't hear how to do that, but of course, that's the mystery. It keeps you honest. And then thirdly was follow the teachings of my son's church. Um, I had a wife that was so prayerful. She had more, we both kind of came back to the Catholic church after my you know, third year of residency fully. I was in a wonderful evangelical church, but it was pastor to pastor, you know, whatever your interpretation of scripture was, 2,000 years plus with the Old Testament added. No. I had to go back to the Catholic faith, the Eucharist, the, you know, the people, the saints. And it really is that cloud of witnesses that you're building here. You absolutely know that holiness is uh, what changes cultures. And the, by his stripes, we are healed. The wages of sin are death. It's not just enough to treat the body, but you have to be conscious and cognizant of the soul. Because when you start dumping hormones into 12-year-olds and 15-year-olds so they can be sexually active, you are, you are promoting not only an unhealthy behavior, but an unhealthy behavior both on this world and kind of in the soul, in the next. And those are the soul ties that form that are very hard to remove. So um, Carolyn said, yeah, dude, uh, she said to do other things. He said to do other things. They're really good. They're wonderful, but... There's more. Majis. <laughs> Ignatian, I guess. Yeah, so start seeing them on our couch. I'll be the biller, the nurse. The... And that's how we started. Uh, within about uh, a month and a half, um, two doctors, both Catholic, let me use their exam rooms one day a week. So for two days a week, I worked. Uh, six, nine families bucked up 60K to start me off. I paid them back within a year with interest. It was good for business for us and for them. And deep down inside, I wanted to make it, I said, Lord, you know, I, I want to serve you, but I want to create an economy that might help others to build their CV, but to give them a place. And this is what I really want to say. So yes, we started out as in my, on our couch, and it was Tepeyac Family Center, because I first heard the message at Tepeyac Hill in Mexico City, and I blew it off. If today you hear his voice, harder not your hearts. I know what the opposite of that is, the consequence. So we began in our basement, and it grew. Now there's five docks moving in and out. It's just it's a really good place to see. We have a few midwives. You know, we do five, 600 deliveries a year. Um, we have a perinatal hospice. We, have, uh, we see the underserved as best we can every day. But that keeps you honest. Do we make a lot of money? No. Do we make enough? Yes. But it's the economy. It's what you guys talk about here at the academic level. We've been seeing it on the ground in the slop. You're seeing it in the educational arena, the challenges you face. I'm seeing it in the medical arena because, you know, we've been sold out a lot, the academic world as well as the medical world. And seeing the underserved is a part of what we do. It's both and. It's left and right. It's liberal and conservative. It's not, it's not either or. It's both and. It's the paradox. It's body and soul. It's faith and reason. And because I love the woman from the grotto here at Notre Dame, it's also virgin and mother. Paradox is filled, with this, filled in this department. 
And it gives you a way to understand it both academically and mysteriously. You still, elite, you still leave the, um, the truth, the depth of truth that lies beyond what's the intertwining of, these, of this person inside the mother. That's the essence. The womb should be the locus of the drama of the human person because it's Jewish. It's the bowel, the heart, and the womb. It's the deepest part of you. And when you go after it, bad things happen across the board. I'm a mash unit. The Holy Father was spot on when he says we triage. We are seeing the dead, the walking dead. It's a real, it's a real thing. It's not just a TV show. We're seeing it. Because you don't know why you're depressed. You don't know why you've put on weight. You don't know. Well, we help them connect dots in a friendly, loving, caring way because we try to see the whole person. You talked about a lot of the work that uh, that Tepeyac does. Um, as one of the largest 100% pro-life clinics in the nation, uh, I love your mission statement to restore the integrity of the human person by combining the best of modern medicine with the healing presence of Jesus Christ. That, that gives you a lot of latitude in that mission. Right? It does. I mean, because it's not just medical care, but it's spiritual care. It's, it's human relationship. I just did a music video for a woman uh, whose mission in life, her vocation, is to go after glamorous women. She came to us, and we walked her through her post-abortion work. And we, she was a uh, wonderful uh, non-Catholic Christian. She went back to church. She found Christ. She's living a life like she's a new wineskin. She, but I was a part of her music. The latitude is huge to reach the culture, not just the choir, but the culture. Because uh, morality and ethics, which are hard words for people today, but stress and anxiety, that works, that resonates. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to share and to build the community, to build the kingdom. And uh, you do it one person at a time in our areas. And, uh, you know, when students come to work with us, um, we try to not, not only uh, talk or see, let them see patients and stuff, but also to just talk with them and pass on the institutional knowledge of what Hippocrates and Galen, and Muscati, and uh, Mola, and Cosmos and Damien, and now Tom, uh, Dr. Dooley, whose statue is right near the grotto, who was a grad of here. But when we can get Dooley and Lejeune to pass on the, that knowledge of the human person in such a committed but fun way, Dr. Jerome coined the term concentration can for all the frozen embryos in those nitrous oxide silos. He was a wonderful man. I had a chance to work at his clinic in Paris as well as get to know and become somewhat of a friend to his wife. Madame to Bertha. See, Madame Bertha. And uh, I was overwhelmed. I was walking in the footsteps of a hero because, believe it or not, when I was at the IVF center and I was converting, you know, changing my heart. Dr. Howard Jones, my professor, coined the term the preembryo. 
not quite human, not quite appendix, but something in between. Why did they do that? Because they wanted to experiment on those embryos up to 14 days. That's what won the paper in 1991 in, in Canada that year. Oh, my God, we dropped embryos into hysterectomized uteruses, and they grew. Of course they grew. The life principle was there already. They were genetically different. 14 days, they had to stop it because they couldn't go beyond it. Were those abortions? Were they loved? Were they children of people? Or were they property, like a loaf of bread that was really made at a really great bakery? And that's really the issue here. It's what you're teaching us on the ground, love and life. What, you know, are you loved or are you used? <laughs> are you your child or are you property? That's what you're getting at about what it means to be human and the dynamic that flows in the human family. Absolutely. And I think it resonates. And I think it's based on good science, excellent science, but we don't teach it anymore. Like we're so far down the road that they're asking me to give hormones to confused young men who want to be women. Boys becoming girls because they're 13, they're 12. So uh, this is really needed. And, uh, you know, I'm just grateful. Tepeyak and your your own life practice stand as proof that doctors can oh, yeah. be successful and have a thriving practice without having Absolutely. to prescribe these things. Um, now, that concept obviously runs so counter yes. to the prevailing mindset. What What's it going to take to change that mindset? So I, I think it's going to be about witness. As long as we strive to stay in business in a culture that doesn't want us, a community that might want to silence you because you're speaking something contrary to what the small group of uh, people in charge, the ACOG board, so to speak. Well, it's for us to witness practice and so serve the community. You use a perinatal hospice to serve those women who have sick children in their uteruses in their wombs, in their body, mother with child, and help them spend time with their sick child. Because as, as we all know, med mercy leads to the gas chamber. Mercy leads to the abortion center. Well, wait a second. No, that's not right. Mercy without, not moored to faith and reason, lead to the gas chamber. Because it's done out of a false compassion. I think um, the, the Walker Percy may have borrowed it from Flannery O'Connor. That's where that phrase comes from. And I'm convinced of it. So Tepiac, we also have to see the underserved. So we were a for-profit company. You know, once again, reimbursements dropping. You can't, you know, insurance companies cutting back. You know, everybody said, John, you got to stop seeing the underserved. I can't. It was a heard a voice from God, you know, from uh, almost like Ghostbusters or whatever. And um, so we became not-for-profit. And people contributed because they saw it served the local community. So I consider ourselves the last almshouse. The last almshouse has a medical practice because it's both and again. We see insured patients. And we see as many who will come. We also open our doors to the underserved, mostly pregnancy center, abortion, vulnerable folks, because that's the other group that most doctors only see maybe one or two visits. 
but they don't form that relationship with them. So it's relational, ultimately, the academic. So you connect the mind and the heart, and the heart then goes and pumps blood to the body. And I think it's the body of Christ, to be perfectly frank with you, when we all come together. But that's, that's how you change the culture, because if they can see a practice, we're a light on a hill, I used to say. That's what she said. You're light on a hill. Okay. <laughs> come on. It's very hard to see the underserved every day. You're constantly juggling. The person who sits in our business seat, the first guy was Bob Laird. He came from the Office of Family Life in the Arlington Diocese. He was a couple-to-couple leagues teacher with his wife, Jerry. He was also a member of the pro-life, bigger underground movement that would meet in Washington, and he helped. Why did he help? Because he saw the value in it. He sacrificed. He was the first guy that rolled over 5K to me and said, do with it what you want, but, you know, we want to see you seeing patience. Because once again, this happened by chance. Chance, No, this happened, this happened to me. I didn't go, oh, yeah, I got this great idea. I just know that our practice has been around for 29 years, and this is how we did it. You may do it differently. We're in your communities, but this is my role now, to exhort and encourage younger people high school, through college, pre-med, and then residents, and then the burned-out, despairing peers. What the hell am I doing? Medicine has lost meaning for me. I'm attached to to the computer screen. I no longer can do this. I have to go on a mission trip in order to find Christ. I've got to go and give myself. Well, there are people in our own communities whether it's South Bend, I call it, you know, Martha and Mary go to Bethany. Martha and Mary go to Fairfax. The poor will always be with us. Do I believe for one minute that Divine Mercy Care, which helps raise money for us to see the underserved, to provide services, we, we work them together because that's how we have to live. The tough days seeing patients who don't show up, who don't cooperate, who have addictions— No, it's the word tepiac. I put it there once again to remind me why we do it. Do not fear. She's talking to Juanito in 1531. Do not fear, my child. Do not fear any illness, vexation, anxiety, or pain. Sounds medical to me. Am I not your mother? Are you not in the crossing of my arms? Are you not in the folds of my mantle? Did I not give you the fountain of life? Did I not show up in the grotto? Is there anything else you need? She says that because we don't really need anything else except God is love and he loved me first and I'm a redeemed sinner and I've been redeemed by his grace. (laughs) It's so amazing. And yet, do you need anything else? Mother, I need another practitioner. I need more people to join. I need to inspire. I think that's what you're telling me to do. I just need whatever you want. I want your triumph to include medicine, if that's possible. There are many things. Focus me. Help me. And uh, help me inspire others. And that's what I've, it's, it's my, I think it's my gift. And I hope to God that it can, um, you know, it can, it can continue to flop flourish, especially in times like this, when disinformation on abortion is popping up. 
Um, I know the institute here, the center here, has um, women and children first. It's excellent. It's comprehensive. It's holistic. It's integrated. All different from business to, to academic to, you know, the people I spoke with on the panel today was, you know, uh, ju social justice group. And the resident at Harvard, Dr. Ree, who is a fourth-year neuro fellow or a neuro resident, and then one of your scholars here in OBGYN, um, who is just fantastic in her ability to synthesize the data with the practical aspect of working. And then myself, who is the more, you know, the clinical guy, it was tremendous. And so mothers and children first, I think it's, 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 it's really going to be an excellent resource as we go forward. Well, John, congratulations on, on a lifetime of work bringing healing and love and compassion moored to faith. You're so welcome. And like I said, it goes both ways. My mom and my wife-to-be prayed for my butt. <laughs> prayed for my heart, excuse prayed me. Prayed for all of you. Prayed for all of me. <laughs> But anyway, no, I agree. It was intercessory prayer. It was just good stuff. And so thank you for that. And thank you for the award. It's our privilege. Thank you to Dr. John Bruchalski. Find links to the Notre Dame Evangelium Vitae Medal Celebration and to a short video profile of his work at Tepeyaco BGYN in the show notes. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Don't Know by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. Good decisions.